Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So a, a man is eating a delicious steak dinner at a restaurant, and the waiter comes out and says, So, sir, how did you find your steak? And the man says, Well, I just moved the potatoes. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. Welcome, everybody. Yay. You just got a joke from Steve Okonski of the band Diane Coffee. That'll help break the ice. Later on, he and the band's frontman, Sean Fleming, will suggest some songs to play at your next gathering. Yeah. Plus, we'll speak with Timothy Oliphant, star of the acclaimed FX show, Justified. Also coming up, author Carl Hyacin suggests pizza toppings for litter bugs. Yum. Roseanne Cash goes on a literary trip, and we hear about the time the world's losing his team won. And no, it's not Chicago Cubs fan fiction, folks. Nope, it's a true story. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Egyptians went to the polls today. A two-day referendum on a draft constitution. 34 nuclear missile launch officers have been implicated in a cheating scandal. Oscar nominations, Gravity, and American Hustle with the most nods, followed by 12 Years a Slave. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Lizzie O'Leary. She is a host at our favorite business show, Marketplace. Lizzie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about generosity. Giving. Uh, and you're giving us some of your time to be here. We I appreciate am. that. I am, but actually, Thank I'm you. talking about money. I would love to have some money. This is not for you, though. This is for countries. Ooh. Okay. Uh, so what we're talking about is Sweden has been the most generous country in terms of giving its gross national income, right? The percentage they give oh. out in aid. And they've been knocked off by a tiny yet stalwart competitor. Who is? Luxembourg. Whoa. Luxy, we didn't know you had it in you. They made a pledge, 1%, and uh, they did it. Well, And there's only four of them. Four Luxembourgians. So they probably didn't have to really (laughs) bicker too much to make that call, right? Most importantly, where do we stand? Where does the United States in the list of giving aid to other countries? We're 19th. What? Um, Behind Luxembourg, we're 19? Now, you have to remember this is done as a percentage, right? So dollar for dollar, we actually still give the most money. But if you're doing it as a percentage, we give point. 2% of our gross national income in official aid. That's very generous of you to explain it that way, Lizzie. (laughs) But it doesn't change the fact that we're 19. I just do the numbers. That's very Luxembourgian (laughs) of you, Lizzie. Thank you for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, time for a generous cocktail. Once again, we tell you a tale from history, then ask a bartender to devise an appropriate cocktail to pair with it. And then you serve up both at your next gathering, and afterwards you send us a nice thank you letter. Let's start with the history. Yeah. This week back in 1971, a sports team called the Washington Generals won a game. Now most folks at your party won't know why that was a big deal. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. The Washington Generals were born to lose. <laughs> See, the team was founded in 1952 for one purpose, to play the Harlem Globetrotters. Harlem, of course, is famous for clowning around on the court and sinking amazing trick shots. Sometimes they play against college teams and even occasionally lose. But usually, they're matched against a chump team. The Washington Generals are the chumps. Led by owner and former player, Louis Red Klotz, the Generals haven't always been called the Generals. For a while, they were the New Jersey Reds. And in the late 1990s, they became the New York Nationals. But they're all Klotz's teams. And though he insists they play to win, they always lose. 
except on January 5th, 1971. That day, the Globetrotters were having so much fun on the court, they lost track of the score. With two minutes to play, they were down by 12. Harlem battled back, but Klotz himself made the final shot in overtime, and the New Jersey Reds won by a point. The crowd booed. Some kids in the stands reportedly cried. Klotz later said it was like he had, quote, killed Santa Claus. But don't worry, Globetrotter fans. You're unlikely to ever have to endure another general's victory. They've now lost over 13,000 times. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm speaking with Eric Holzer. He is the owner and bar maestro at Wisdom in the general's sometimes hometown of Washington, D.C. <laughs> Eric, you heard the history. What cocktail does that inspire you to make? Well, Rico, I uh, created the Eternal Optimist. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess they are. And uh, there's a lot of meaning in, in this. Chose as the base Leopold's American Small Batch Whiskey since basketball is an American sport. All right. And then um, Benedictine liquor. Really? Why? Benedictine's um, celebrating its 500th anniversary. And so uh, the team that's lost over 13,000 times, I wanted a a liquor that had some staying power. (laughs) No matter how bad things get, it's still there. There you go. I was cracking up reading the stories and doing my research on the team. Pretty awesome that they lost in over 97 countries. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, if, if it's a way to see the world, more power to those players. Oh, yeah. And in front of the Pope. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. That's right. They played in front of the Pope. There you go. Then we, uh, we squeezed fresh lemon juice. Okay. And then two ounces of pressed apple juice for the Big Apple for the Harlem Globetrotters and where their roots are. And finally, uh, half an ounce of Chinar, artichoke liqueur, a bitter liqueur which uh, I thought was fitting for people that have lost 13,000 times. And, you know, artichoke liquor makes sense because the team itself chokes <laughs> pretty often. you got to tell me, by the way, as a Washington, D.C.ite, do you get just a little bit of pride that your team fails so spectacularly? Yeah, I mean, you know, anything we're doing is worth doing right. And, Brendan, it's sweet that Klotz insists Globetrotter games are real serious contests. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you're, you're not so sure about that, huh? I'm just saying, right now, the Globetrotters are letting fans vote on rules for their games, including <laughs> allowing two balls to be in play at the same time. <laughs> I'm not... Wow. I'm surprised they didn't vote for tackling. That would be. <laughs> That's what I'd go for. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks, you can find our cocktail recipes online, dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, had a drink, but it's not yet a party till there's music playing. So for a playlist, we turn to Sean Fleming and Steve Okonski of the band Diane Coffee. Sean also drums for the popular indie rock act Foxygen, and both bands share a psychedelic 60s sound, mm-hmm. but their musical tastes are all over the map. Here they are to prove it. Hi, I'm Sean Fleming. I'm Steve Okonski. And we are Diane Coffee. We're on tour right now, promoting our album, My Friend Fish. And here's our dinner party soundtrack. We're going to start off this evening with a song called Waltz for Coop by the band Coop. We never seem to find peace I really like this track. To start off a dinner party, it's an easy song to talk over and to drink to. It's easy for you to maybe to kind of get to know one another. It's background music. 
are a Swedish acid jazz duo. It takes Coop a few years to release each album due to the fact that the way they create their records is by doing micro samples from a bunch of different artists and then creating their songs solely using that. This is actually the first Coop song I ever heard. My brother put it on his wedding mix and it was one of the first times I was allowed to drink in public. <laughs> Up next, maybe just before dinner is served, the next track I would play would be Bala Con Bala. Elise Regina, she's a Brazilian artist. That album was released in 72. It's just her first name, Elise. I live in Brooklyn and I was walking to dinner with my girlfriend. We came across a milk crate of records. I mean, they were trash, but you know, a lot of people like looking through the trash for this sort of thing. But we were also late to dinner. So I hid them behind some random person's stoop, went to dinner, came back. They were still there and took them home. And this album was one of the albums in there, and I couldn't stop listening to it. And I think this is my favorite song off of that album. An incredibly catchy track that you can't help but move to. And I don't understand a word of it. I assume it has something to do about dancing. So this track will be playing as dinner starts. I think that's important because when people start eating what I guarantee will be a delicious meal, people aren't going to be doing much talking anyway. They're going to be eating. So it's good digestive music. It's an amazing track. It's so rhythmic and so harmonic. It's, she, she put a little bit of everything into it. Moving on to our dessert course, I think we're gonna fly on over to Scotland and put on a little Boards of Canada. It's called Roy G. Biv on uh, their self-titled album, I believe which was in 87, the year I was born. I encountered this track at about 13. I was listening to a lot of Third Eye Blind, and my older brother, who was very on the scene, sent me this track as a way to kind of make me a little bit hipper than all my other friends. And I felt so hip listening to this song. It was all I really played for six months. track I chose for dessert is very beat-oriented. Boards of Canada is very beat-oriented. So it kind of puts that pulse back inside of you again. Kind of gets you moving a little bit and working off that fantastic dinner that we just had. Most Boards of Canada is pretty chilled. There's never any lyrics, to my knowledge. And I still, to this day, will put it on doing random tasks, filling out my taxes, Oh, it's great taxes music. If you're not eating dessert to Boards of Canada, try doing your taxes to it. It's fantastic. If we we're gonna play one of our own tunes, it'd probably be him. We'd have to be strong-armed into it, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. 
for the first time, I actually am able to, in between tours, host uh, quite a few dinner parties. We were all lucky enough to have, a, not a dinner party, but a breakfast party, the whole band at his house in Bloomington. Oh yeah, this is definitely breakfast, lunch, and dinner music. Dinner Party soundtrack from Sean Fleming and Steve Okonski of the band Diane Coffee. They're on tour now, and if Sean's voice sounds familiar, that's because he was a voice actor on the cartoons Kim Possible and Lilo and Stitch. I did not know that. Yeah. Also didn't know uh, Boards of Canada were Scottish. I'd always assumed they were Canadian, of course. Well, that kind of happens a lot, though. You know, the band Asia was from England. Of course. And Nickelback's from hell. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, they are from Canada. Oh, right. It's almost the opposite of hell. (laughs) Uh, Folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, best-selling author Carl Hyacin when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, country star Roseanne Cash takes a trip to the South and into music and literary history. And later, Timothy Oliphant, star of the crime show Justified, demonstrates proper parenting skills. Brush your god teeth. There's a lot of that at the house. Just brush them. Speaking of which, time to learn some etiquette. Yes. Each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is a chronicler of one state's bad behavior, Carl Hyacin. He is probably best known for his popular thrillers, but he's also won the Newbery Award for his children's books. And most germane to our purposes, he is a longtime columnist for the Miami Herald. A collection of those columns comes out this week. It's called Dance of the Reptiles, Rampaging Tourists, Marauding Pythons, Crazed Celebrities, Larcenous Legislators, and Tarballed Beaches. Carl, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for coming. So, as folks might guess from this title, uh, in the book you write about just a cavalcade of Florida dysfunction, and you have said in the past the strangest things that a Florida novelist can dream up will eventually actually come true. That's the hard part, is writing something that won't come true, especially if you do satire. But I I do think it's interesting that the first essay here talks about the insanity of tourists. These are people (laughs) visiting from outside of the state. (laughs) So are Floridians really a special brand of crazy, or do you guys just write about your crazies more? Well, I mean, the resident, many of the resident Floridians started as tourists, and that's where the downhill slide <laughs> began. But uh, yeah. we, we, we also have to cope with, you know, 50 or 60 million tourists a year coming through, um, and that's a lot for any population to absorb and, and deal with, especially, you know, when you're talking about etiquette, this is the, the land where there is no tourist etiquette. After Hurricane Andrew in 92, Many, many tourists up at Disney World aborted their Disney World vacation so they could drive down and see the hurricane damage and and videotape it. And the police had to go on TV and said, this is not a tourist attraction. This is an emergency 9-11 zone. And they were were clogged with people with video cameras taking pictures of it. They they couldn't get, you know, ambulances in and things? Yeah, no, it was was a real problem because they said, heck, we're in Florida anyway. What's what's one? Let's just go down south and see the real hurricane. And it's cheaper than Disney, let's be 
honest. <laughs> they probably the line the lines were shorter. That's right. Oh, no. <laughs> they had real monkeys running loose. It was great. <laughs> All right. Well, before we chatted with you today, we decided to check out some of the recent headlines around Florida. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, maybe you can comment on these. Honestly, we just took a peek. Google News. Oh, God. <laughs> here, here are a few. Uh, Manatee County deputies say a mother left her one-year-old child near a mailbox outside a home she believed was the current residence of the baby's father. Right. I saw, I saw so. that story. It's, it's like the mail carriers that don't have enough problems now. <laughs> they don't pick up a baby. Yeah, it's just, it goes on and on. One, one last thing, 40,000 bees found nesting at the Miami airport. Yeah, that's not enough. They need more, um, <laughs> in my view. Have you been to the Miami airport? Yeah. The bees are the least of your problems. I was going to say, that's probably the least of the weird contraband they find. Anything that makes the baggage move faster, I'm in favor of, even if it's 40,000 bees. All right. Well, let, let's turn to our listeners' questions. They, they definitely have problems, but they're relatively far better adjusted than the folks you typically write about. Yeah. So this first question comes from Brian in Philadelphia. Brian writes... How do my roommate and I decide at what temperature to set the heater and what constitutes comfortable? I like to be warm. I'm from Florida. He's all for keeping it um, frigid. Mm. I, you know, this is, he doesn't say whether the roommate is a significant other or just a, a someone uh, you can insult freely. Yeah. If it's someone you, you have a romance <laughs> with, you, you, you obviously Keep it cold. let them decide what the thermostat is. If it's just someone who's splitting the bill with you, I think, then you, you've, the other first problem in all of this is that you moved from Florida to Philadelphia. I think that's Brian's first problem. You're going to be cold. Yeah. He's escaping the bees, for God's sake. <laughs> yes, right, right. Or he tried to mail a letter and there was a, a, an abandoned baby in the way. You never know. Indeed. He was like, I'm out of here. That's a, it's a good question for you. I mean, do you ever consider, you're a lifetime Floridian, do you ever consider moving from there? Well, after you read me these headlines, yeah, I think about it all the time. No, but I mean, I was born here and I love the place and it's, it's, a, it's a place that's worth fighting for. I, I think if I was a transient, as many, many Floridians, are, yeah, and enough of, the, of these headlines pile up on you, you start thinking about Caracas. I mean, you start thinking about, you know, really, Alaska starts looking pretty good. Or Philly. Philly. Even Philly, yeah. He's going to be cold. There's, he just That's the only answer. You just put on another blanket and suck it up. All right. Here's something from uh, Butt Out, they call themselves in Minnesota. Yeah. Butt Out writes, I have a neighbor in my condo <laughs> complex who is always throwing cigarette butts on the ground, and I know Carl hates litter bugs. What should I say to this guy? I don't know him, but want him to see the error of his ways. Well, first of all, you don't say anything to him uh, because you're risking your life at doing that. Here's what I would do. If I, first of all, you go, when he's not home, you go around the property, you pick up as many of his cigarette butts as you can. Yeah. Next, you order him a pizza. You intercept the pizza okay. guy. You put all the cigarette butts on the pizza. <laughs> You leave oh, wow. it at his front door, and if he doesn't get the message, then I like it. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's, it sounded wow. passive aggressive at first, but it's actually aggressive aggressive. No, no, it's uh, it's those gnarly chewed up butts all sprinkled yeah. in the pepperoni. Oh. Yeah, come on, he's got to get. The, I like Got to get the message. All right, here's something from Mara in Riga, Latvia. Uh, a good friend of mine, writes Mara, has a really rude boyfriend who, to tell the truth always annoys everyone in our group of friends. Unfortunately, and also understandably, my friend always brings her boyfriend everywhere she goes. Is there a polite way to invite my friend to, let's say, my birthday party and clearly state that invitation is meant only for her? Mm. That's a tough one. It is a tough one. I don't see a way around it. I mean, we all know people, we all know couples where we can stand one, but the other one is, yeah. is just unbearable. And you have to, especially holidays, birthdays, that kind of thing. I don't know how you deal with it. Somebody's got to be close enough friend to say, look, 
you're making a really bad decision here, and, and we're, you know, we're giving you, you know, set her up with somebody else. You know, I mean, say, hey, look, I, that's what I'm you. thinking. Find someone better for. Her. Let's go back to your pizza strategy. You know what I mean? Like, order her a pizza with the, a really nice, non-rude yeah. person to deliver it, or something. Like, yeah, or like the a, opposite. Yeah, exactly. Like a, the ultimate pizza delivery guy, and she just looks at him. <laughs> Wait, and that says, reminds me of a movie I once saw. I oh know. God. <laughs> Wait, this is just yeah. what every lady's looking for, by the way, is a pizza delivery guy. Right. That's yeah. the, sort of the Seth. Rogan a solution. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I don't do an advice column. This is exactly why I don't do an advice column. <laughs> You're doing right. great. Carl Hyacin, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Oh, great. Yeah. No, <laughs> this is no telling what damage we've done here today. There's going to be vile <laughs> pizzas delivered all the way in Latvia now just because of us. <laughs> Best-selling author and Miami Herald columnist Carl Hyacin. A new collection of his columns about Florida comes out next week. It's called Dance of the Reptiles. And folks, if you have an etiquette question, even if you're from a relatively more polite state... Like Texas. Sure. Send it to us via dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Singer Roseanne Cash has scored 11 number one country hits. She's also an author, and stories play a big part in her songs. A recent trip led to her first album in four years, and today we overhear a tale she brought back with her. Hi, my name is Roseanne Cash. My new album is called The River and the Thread, and it was inspired by the South and by a lot of trips and characters and places in the South. My husband is a bit of a William Faulkner buff. He wrote his college thesis on Faulkner. And we wanted to start at Faulkner's house. It was kind of mind-blowing, this avenue of gorgeous oak trees leading up to it. After seeing Faulkner's house, we drove to Dockery Farms, which was once the largest cotton plantation in Mississippi. It's now not a functioning cotton plantation. But all of the great blues musicians worked at Dockery Farms picking cotton. Helen Wolf, Charlie Patton, Pop Staples. There was a juke joint there, and they sat on the porch of the juke joint and played music at night and picked cotton by day. We have a friend whose grandfather was Will Dockery, who started the plantation. And he brought out this 1930s national guitar for my husband to play, just so he could feel like he was part of that Duke joint history. We go pitch a way, way so he says to us, look, there's this old man I know Lee McCarty, who lives in Marigold, Mississippi. It's not that far from here. And he would love to have lunch with us. Shall we go? We thought, well, yeah, what the hell? Let's meet some more Mississippi natives, you know, do the whole thing. Lee McCarty is a ceramicist, and he's actually, we found out, kind of famous around the world. There was a line going out the door to get into his ceramic shop. We go to lunch at the restaurant he has had built for himself because he had no place good to have lunch. He basically owns the town. And Lee is in his 90s. So as you can imagine, my husband and I were just wanting to soak up anything he wanted to tell us because 
you know, he remembered Mississippi back to when Pop Staples sat on the porch of the Duke joint at Dockery Farms right up the road. I said at one point in listening to the story he was telling, I said, just casually, Lee, did, did you know William Faulkner? And he said, oh, Bill and Estelle were lovely people. <laughs> My wife and I, they were our dear friends. So, you know, they partied together at Faulkner's house. And he said, in fact, Bill Faulkner had a clay pit in back of his house. And he told me, he said, if you're going to start making pottery, just take what you want. I got so much clay back here. And Lee said that's how he began as a ceramicist, with clay from William Faulkner's pit. So that was worth the whole day. Just to hear that story was enough. But then I had to push it further, and I said, Lee, did you know Eudora Welty? And he said, Eudora was a lovely woman. (laughs) It came to life to me. Oh, Howlin' Wolf and Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson were right up the road from William Faulkner and Lee McCarty, who's sitting here across the table from me. It's hard to believe what came out of that one little spot in the Delta. But who will hold her hand in sunken lands? Singer Roseanne Cash Her new album is called The River and the Thread. She also told us a story about the time Bill Clinton gave her a critique of a certain classic country tune. You're going to want to give that a listen. It's on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, as you know, I am, shall we say, a passionate eater. To put it mildly. (laughs) And so basically once a week, I end up splattering something on my clothes. That's right. Oh, really? I just thought you liked (laughs) tie-dyes. Actually, I prefer paisley. Either but seriously, way. imagine if I could eat without the fear of creating a ketchup Rorschach test on my lap. <laughs> you would weigh 500 pounds eventually. <laughs> Maybe, but I'd also be stain-free. That's nice. Enter dress ties. This is a new product. You wear it over your chest, and it protects your clothes. So it's a bib. Oh, hold on here. So I decided to meet with Michael Tanney, the company's founder, and gave Dress Ties a test drive over a sloppy meal of chicken wings. Dress Ties, a.k.a. a bib. Well, you're not allowed to call it that. We uh, actually don't refer to them as bibs. We refer to them as clothing protectors. The reason being is that uh, bibs usually have a negative connotation. Because you think of children. They wear bibs because they're sloppy. Correct. But did you decide on calling it clothing protection, or is there like a larger group of people who make similar products, and that's the agreed upon term? Uh, no, this is this is uh, our term. Uh, the thing is that we came up with this uh, with this name, uh, this concept, and it's a unique product. Uh, up until now, there, to my knowledge, there has been no product out there that is uh, stylish, uh, trendy, and fashionable that does the job this does. Well, let's get to that. So I want to I want to don my clothing protector. You were nice enough to ask me which one I wanted, and I selected the classic black protector. And these are pretty natty. That's the other attractive thing about these. For someone who's in the radio universe who can't see us right now, that when they think of a bib, I think they think of a lobster bib. Explain the difference between your clothing protector and that default image. The concept here is to have a a very light and and portable uh, accessory that can be easily taken out of your pocket. That's very, very... Um, small and portable, but it does a very big job, and it took us 
a long time to come up with a formulation that does what it's supposed to do. It folds into, like, it's like about the size of a little bigger than a passport. When it's folded up, there's a little mesh bag it comes in. It has a Velcro back, which is very easy. It kind of adjusts its size. I have kind of a skinny neck. And what I like about this immediately, it runs, I have a long torso, my whole torso into the beginning of my lap. And that's the shelf where a lot of my food ends up. We designed it to be a, a precise length that would work well with uh, uh, people that are uh, tall, short, or medium height and protect the essential area. Now, when you say we, I assume you're talking about your son who runs this company with you. Tell me where you guys got this idea. The idea came from, uh, first of all, my son is a Wall Street guy, and he dresses up very nicely every day. After uh, in a one-month period, he, uh, he, had, he had complained to me that he destroyed uh, three expensive ties, and, I, and that's when the light bulb went off. That, that was the, uh, the beginning of dress ties. And so your son was on Wall Street, sloppy eater? I mean, you, you raised him your whole, his whole life. Very, very neat and careful. But uh, this is a, a problem that uh, every one of us has had on a repeated basis. I mean, it's happened to me uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And I'm sure there isn't a person out there that hasn't spilled something on their clothes. Uh, but uh, there are many uh, really, really um, special applications for this. Like, for example, uh, people that go to uh, business lunches and worry about their next meeting, that they're going to uh, splash some spaghetti sauce on, on their tie, their blouse, their suit, and look foolish at, at their meeting. Your, your, your comp confidence is stripped away, and, um, and things change um, when you walk into a meeting looking like that. So this, this uh, solves a very, very important need. Agreed. But on the, now the, the other side of this is... You're wearing this while you're eating a meal, and this is not what everyone wears, so you're sticking out a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Up until now, um, you're not going to be seeing anybody except those uh, few that take a, uh, a napkin and stick it in, in, their, in their collar or throw their tie back. Something like this you don't see. But we think that uh, people are willing to change their lifestyles if it's simple and yet provides a very, very important um, service to them. I want to I ask them just what their thought. Do you mind if I ask these people? What, yeah. So what is your name? Charmaine. And what, what do you think seeing two guys? He, he's wearing a purple one. I'm wearing a black one. What do you think? That's cute. That's cute. Because you see a lot of guys, they spill food on their ties in the front of their shirts. But that's, that's cute. That's a good idea. If you're, you know, your, your brother or husband, you, you wouldn't think it was weird that he was wearing a um, kind of a bib. We call him a clothing protector. Not at all. all right. Not especially my brother. <laughs> is he a sloppy eater? Yes, he is. <laughs> He always has stuff on, his, on the front of his shirt. But that's a good idea. All right. Well, thanks for your feedback. See that? People are going for it. That's uh, sort of the reaction we uh, normally get. So let's say this trend takes off. What are the rules now? Let's make up the rules of clothing protectors. If I go to the restroom, what should I do with my clothing protector? Keep it on? Fold it up? What do I do? Well, actually, there are no rules yet. So we're going to have to uh, figure out um, if, if there needs to be any. But I, I don't think there, need, there needs to be any rules whatsoever. If you feel like taking it off, take it off. If you... Want to leave it on? Leave it on. I'm, I'm thinking take it off. You come out of the bathroom wearing one of these things. I think that, I don't know, I just, that might strike someone as awkward. Uh, that's a possibility. So how much do these cost? They start from $29.99. We wanted to make it reasonable uh, so that uh, there would be no objections to price. We go up to $88 for some of the custom ones made with vintage fabric. Vintage, like, fabric from Dom DeLuise's chef's jacket? Well, like this uh, 30-year-old uh, beautiful red paisley um, is, is over 30 years old. It comes from the 70s. I would be scared to eat with that. I would need a clothing protector for my clothing protector. <laughs> That's a funny concept. And you're like, you can buy one of those from me, too. Good idea. <laughs> oh, 
All right, so Brendan, I'm mildly less skeptical, but here's my question. Why, when the guy mentioned vintage fabric, was the first thing that came to your mind Dom DeLuise's chef's jacket? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I'm not even sure I remember what his chef's jacket looks but like. But somehow that's representative of the past. He is not a flapper dress or a tux. Dom DeLuise's chef's jacket. <laughs> Maybe he haunts my dreams. There you go. All right, we're going to take a quick break while we figure that out. Coming up, Tim Oliphant, star of the TV show Justified. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a tune from the band A Sunny Day in Glasgow. And we'll speak to an MIT professor about what'll happen when computers take our jobs. A not-so-sunny day. Yeah, well, it depends. But first, really? it's time to meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's Timothy Oliphant. He's appeared in a slew of films, including Gone in 60 Seconds and Go. But he's maybe best known for portraying two lawmen on TV, Sheriff Seth Bullock on HBO's Deadwood. And he earned an Emmy nomination as U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens, the hero of the crime dramedy Justified. Here's a taste from last season of Raylan's hard-boiled humor. You awake? Yeah, I'm now. Since when do you sleep in your clothes? Couldn't figure out a way to keep a gun in my undershorts. Since when do you sleep with a gun? Since I found out the woman I've been seeing has a husband I couldn't knock down with a hammer. Justified's fifth season began this month. Earlier this week, we asked Timothy to come talk to us about it. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So, first of all... I think many people do think of you as those hard-bitten, Wild West-style guys. And then you You're got... talking about my kids? <laughs> they think of me as a hard-bitten, lawman type of guy. You walk into town with, the, with your six-shooters blazing? Brush your god <laughs> teeth. There's a lot of that at the house. Man. Just brush them. I'm sorry for them. Uh, and then Rango, maybe a film your kids enjoyed. You were the voice of the spirit of the West. Mm -hmm. And I think people might be surprised to find that you're from Hawaii and Modesto, and you went to USC to study fine art. I'm I'm just interested in how actors perceive themselves as opposed to how casting directors cast them. I mean, has this streak of roles surprised you? Do you see yourself as the spirit of the West? <laughs> no, the spirit of the West was a little out of the blue. <laughs> but, you know, I'm I'm not unaware of the general perception of it all. Of how do I perceive myself? I basically do a lot of driving. I drive my kids around. I spend a lot of time doing that and walking dogs. So I kind of perceive myself as the help, more or less. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I guess the question is kind of, are you surprised when you walk into a, you know, an audition and people are like, yeah, that's the gunslinging cool guy. First of all, Rico, uh, let me help you with your perception. I don't audition. <laughs> I think you have a misconception there. You're past that now. I think all right, we've already, yes, let's clear this first one up right <laughs> off the bat. You make the rules. Offers only, buddy. Um, I will audition, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I'm of course. More than, not, not, you're not supposed to say, of course, back. <laughs> you're supposed to say, really? You still really? audition. Who would dare make you? I don't know you very well, but so far, <laughs> I, I, the jury's yeah. still out on you. Yeah. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't have a sense of, uh, I don't know the answer to your question in terms of casting, what they're cast. I mean, you also have played, uh, you're kind of the rare leading man that does also a lot of comedy stuff. You've been in FX's The League and some really hilarious things, as well as playing these kind of more dramatic roles. I'm just wondering, whenever you get one of those dramatic roles, do you feel like, wait, but I'm the funny guy, really? You want me to be a hard I remember guy? doing Deadwood saying, hey, I, I could be the funny guy. What's up? <laughs> What's this anger thing that's going on? 
you know, there was a while where I couldn't get my hands on a uh, any kind of role with any kind of gravitas. Mm-hmm. It was the other way. You know, if you have any kind of success in, in one thing, they just tend to, God willing, send you some other opportunities that are just like that one. That's kind of how it works. I have a frivolous question since we're talking about your lawman styles. One of Raylan's signature moves is the quick draw with a gun. Mm-hmm. Have you actually learned to do that with any accuracy, or is it just... No, <laughs> not a clue. All right. In fact, I, I'm actually going to do a thing for charity where we're going to go out to the shooting range and shoot some guns. You know, you can go to some website. You can win an opportunity to go come to the set, and we're going to go to a shooting range. And when I agreed to do that, it occurred to me a couple of things. First, well, that'll be fun. I've never been to a shooting range. <laughs> Second thing that occurred to me is how I wonder how good the background check is on this person who wins. That's right. Suddenly it's just a free fire zone. That's not good. Yeah. Um, speaking of the show, let's talk about what I think grabs a lot of people about it, which is the tone. It's based on the stories of the late crime novel master Elmore Leonard, and it's got Leonard's mix of clever, kind of profane verbal comedy, and it just suddenly smashes up against violence and psychological drama. First of all, you're also a producer on the show. What do you think is so enthralling to us about that mix? Why does it grab us? You know, I, I like it. I can tell you what I like about it. Good. You know, I, I, well, Elmore's cool, and I've always been attracted to that. Um, people who are funny that don't acknowledge they're being funny. I, I just, it's cool. I mean, that's the definition of cool. People are funny. Don't acknowledge they're being funny or cool. I also think it's it's just the way people in those types of professions are, and I find I've always found that fascinating. I mean, I've been unfortunate enough to you know be at a scene of a crime or at the scene of a, a really horrific thing, and you if you can steal a moment there and listen to the way the cops are talking or the firemen are talking, it's really not how they're often portrayed. They're oftentimes very unemotional, and every now and then we'll say a joke to one another that kind of makes your jaw drop. There's been a lot made of kind of male anti-heroes on modern TV shows, but these kind of morally ambiguous protagonists, this Walter White on Breaking Bad, Don Draper and Mad Men, maybe all this starting with Tony Soprano. Raylan's definitely a lot, many shades lighter than those characters. He's got more of a sense of humor, but he still kind of fits their profile, Lily, as quite a dark past. What is going on, do you think, that we're suddenly so fascinated by these guys on TV? Well, you know, I say this, but I, it includes television, especially in the last decade, I guess, or so. But movies are basically like dreams, right? You're, you're watching people live out these fantasies that most of us cannot do. And sure. What fun to be Tony Soprano and just say, oh, there's that guy. Pull over. I'm going to beat the out of him. And I'm going to get back in my car and go about my day. Who doesn't want to do that? It's true. That's although fantastic. It... <laughs> And then go to their therapist and talk about it. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, everyone goes to their therapist and talks about how they want to beat the out of someone. It's true. Although it is interesting that in, in shows like that, almost immediately after that kind of primal need is expressed, there's got to be the sudden pushback against it. Well, you know, what makes these great characters are the, is the contradiction. I just rewatched the first season of The Sopranos. You know, he's the head of the New Jersey mob. He's beating the out of everybody, everybody's afraid of him, and his mother brings him to his knees. Yeah, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the contradiction. And you know, on our show, when they offered me this job, the thing that bounced off the page was a guy gave someone 24 hours to get out of town, or he'd kill him, and he did it. And then he told another guy that you don't come in someone's house unless you knock first. 
That's fantastic. And then bashes his head against the steering wheel when, when the guy talks back to him. Yeah, um, some, some sort of gentlemanly grace existing at the same time with just brute force. There you go. I appreciate you saying it. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that, exactly. You don't know what he's going to do next. He seems so relaxed and relatively at ease and confident, but then there are these flashes of violence and anger that come out at unexpected moments. That's it, right? You're looking for the unexpected, yet the inevitable. All right, we have two questions that we ask all our guests of honor. Mm. And the first one is, if we met you at a dinner party, what question shouldn't we ask? What is the question you're just tired of answering? Oh, you know, I it's a cop-out to tell you I can't think of one, huh? <laughs> it kind of is. Clearly, you didn't like when I, you know, asked you about auditioning. So we learned... It's never the questions. It's the person asking them. That's the problem. <laughs> So just don't be me, apparently, at the dinner party asking Listen, you a question. I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is there's certain people at a dinner party ask me whatever the hell they want. You know what I'm saying? I'm just happy they're there at the dinner party. And there's other people, it doesn't matter what they ask. Just I just want them to shut up. <laughs> Indeed. I'm not alone here, people, right? Everyone understands what I'm talking about. I'm sure people across America are nodding in agreement. The second question we have is to tell us something. It's more of an order, really. Tell us something we don't know. Mm. You don't know what I'm thinking right now. That is absolutely true. Boom. (laughs) Done. Timothy Oliphant, the new season of Justified airs on FX Tuesday nights. And Brendan, I actually learned something about the show that even Timothy said he didn't know. All right. There's a, a kind of a trophy that is temporarily awarded to one of the show's writers when he or she captures Elmore Leonard's style. Mm-hmm. And it consists of a soda can that Leonard drank from when he visited the set one day. Wow. Isn't that All right. nice? Not a Pulitzer. <laughs> a little grosser, but... Kind of cooler. Yeah, kind of cooler. Yeah. It's way more, way fewer people have won it, so it's more elite. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled on a dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the subject is the second machine age, and our expert is Eric Brynjolfsson, the director of the MIT Center for Digital Business. He and his colleague Andrew McAvee have co-authored a new book called The Second Machine Age, Work, Progress, and Prosperity in a Time of Brilliant Technologies. Eric, welcome. Pleasure to be here. So what's the second machine age, and will there still be dinner parties? (laughs) Well, there will definitely be dinner parties. I think there'll be more dinner parties than ever. That's that's the vision I have of the future. Fantastic. Um, absolutely. But there's also going to be a lot of disruption, um, just as there was in the first machine age. For most of human history, there are wars and religious and insights and philosophies that rose and fell. But basic human condition didn't change much at all, whether mm. you look at uh, economics or even population, until something happened around... 1775, 1800. And that was the Industrial Revolution, and in particular, the invention of the steam engine. Yeah. Um, that set off a, just a, uh, an explosion of creativity and economic activity. Uh, we're now in the early stages of what Andrew McAfee and I called the second machine age. And the difference is that while the first machine age really focused on automating muscle work and bringing more and more physical power, whether it's for the steam engine or the internal combustion engine or electricity, the second machine age is much more about automating and augmenting cognitive work, um, helping us make decisions or even having machines make better decisions than we can. So if jobs that involve human muscle are wiped out and soon 
many jobs that involve brains <laughs> will be wiped out. What's going to be left for humans to do? Well, that's a great question. And I have to be frank and say that I don't know for sure what the future will be in terms of which jobs are going to, to remain. Because whenever Andy and I look at a, a job and think, well, that one that's one that uh, the humans will always be able to do, almost inevitably we run into someone at the MIT Media <laughs> Lab or in Silicon Valley that's working on a project exactly yeah. to, to, to work on that. So, But th- I can tell you that there are some some categories that have had growth recently, and I suspect we'll have growth for a continuing amount of time. I mean, one big category is anything involving creative work. Computers aren't very creative, aren't able to write a great novel or uh, compose a symphony or even create great software. There's a great Picasso quote in your book about this topic uh, where he says, quote, but they're useless. They can only give answers. Exactly. They only give you answers. And Going forward in the next 10 years, the people who can ask the right questions are going to be a lot more valuable than people who just follow instructions and and give you answers because that's something that computers are getting better and better at doing. So over the next decade, I I think there are opportunities, but it's going to be a challenge. And although we've always been able to create jobs in the past, there's no set guarantee that those jobs are going to keep coming in the next 10 years at the same rate. So is our future going to be the Jetsons or is it going to be dystopia? Well, you know, um, when we wrote this book, we wrote it in part out of confusion because we heard these two different groups giving radically different views of the future. There were people, you could call them uh, utopians, who imagined uh, a future where, you know, machines solved every problem and, and a lot of technologists kind of instinctively fall into this camp. And, and you hear it in, in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. Um, but we also heard from a really pessimistic group, which tended to be mostly economists, you know, the so-called dismal science, who uh, pointed out that median income is lower now than it was in the 1990s. That means half the people uh, were poorer now than they were before. Um, employment is, is really struggling. Um, and they often had dire predictions for the future as well. And, and Andy and I were confused. We wanted to try and reconcile these both correct facts about the world. Basically, it's, it seems like, yes, computers are making, are producing more money, but that's going to f- fewer and fewer people. That, that, that's exactly it. I mean, these two groups kind of yell at each other and say, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. And it turns out that they're both right about what they're talking about. And, and furthermore, there's a common cause to both of these phenomena, which is rapidly improving technology. Now, at the end of the book, you make some recommendations about what we can do to ease the disruption, to kind of maybe push us towards a, a, a kinder, better future. And I think that's great because a lot of books like this don't do that. But, you know, some of the things you suggest, uh, mm-hmm. investing in infrastructure, negative taxes, paying teachers six-digit salaries, you know, frankly, considering the current economic and political climate, they seem kind of like fantasy. <laughs> well, I think in in the in this future world, we will be a lot more productive, a lot more wealthy. We'll be able to afford things we couldn't afford before. In fact, I think in many ways, we, we can't afford not to do some of the things we describe in the book. Um, in the first industrial revolution, when 90% of Americans were farmers and that went down to now it's 2%, those people didn't all become unemployed because America made a huge investment in primary education. Mm-hmm. It's been called the best idea America ever had. And I, I can't disagree with that. That investment reskilled hundreds of millions of people and made it possible for Henry Ford and Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates and others to help invent entirely new industries. That was a combination of technology and public policy and a lot of private efforts, entrepreneurship and and reskilling. We need the same kind of combination 
going forward. And I, I, I'm, I'm a mindful optimist because I think that we will step up to the challenge. The past 10 years have been a warning shot across the bow, but um, we're not going to slow down and we shouldn't try to slow down technology. Hmm. We do need to, to rethink how we organize the economy. And if we step up to that challenge, I think we'll be in good shape. Last question. Reading, you know, you, you said you're a mindful optimist and there's some reason to be a mindful optimist, but is part of that reason because at MIT you guys have a secret bunker uh, <laughs> or or a world that you've like bought maybe in South America, like a bunch of acreage where you're going to go <laughs> when the robots take over? <laughs> no comment. I really can't, can't say anything about that one way or the other. Eric Brynjolfsson, the new book he co-authored with Andrew McAfee is called The Second Machine Age. And Rico, a study cited in the book predicts that computers will be smarter than humans as early as 2045. Great. <laughs> Wonderfully scary. Yeah. I'm being nicer to my Roomba already. <laughs> And that's the dinner party download for this week, folks. Yeah. Don't worry. We'll do the dishes. Yeah, you just go into the living room and follow us on Twitter, okay? We are Dinner Party DNLD. Meanwhile, let us remind you that Jackson Musker is the associate producer and assistant dishwasher of the Dinner Party download. Other folks who helped prepare the party are Brittany Martin, James Delahousie, and Jeff Peters. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it is time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. And speaking of misleading band names, no members of the band A Sunny Day in Glasgow hail from Scotland. Canada, I hope. You think? No, they are from the U.S. and Australia. What is wrong with these people? (laughs) Why must they confuse us? They have geographic dysmorphia. I don't get Uh, it. And they also have a new track out called In Love with Useless, subtitled The Timeless Geometry in the Tradition of Passing. Bon appétit. the dinner party download. I am Brandon Francis Newnham. And I am Rico Galliano. Thanks for listening. Man, you gotta admit, those Roombas are pretty good. Yeah. At least they kept us on as interns. <laughs>